Welcome everyone to John Mousefield Inspires. Um, this event is sponsored by the Arts Council England and we are very grateful for all their support. Thank you for coming to this 50th anniversary celebration of one of Ledbury's most celebrated poets. Um, please let me introduce you to the Herefordshire Stanza Group. They're a group of local poets affiliated with the Poetry Society. They held their first meeting in the Green Dragon in Hereford in February 2012. They began with only five members and are now at 23. Although actually they've never been together all at the one time, so maybe next year. <laughs> uh, the members come from Herefordshire, Gloucestershire and Worcestershire. And the group was started by Leslie Ingram, who is here today. So if we could please give Leslie a warm welcome, and she will introduce John Macefield Inspires. Thank you. Um, this is the 50th anniversary of the death of John Macefield. He was Poet Laureate for 37 years, um, until his death, aged 88. He was only beaten by Tennyson but I don't know about how many years. He was born in Ledbury and was a prolific writer of poems, novels and letters. And some of his memories of this area in particular are absolutely fascinating. We've been inspired to respond to his life and work by writing some of our own poems. We've got eight poets here today. Meg Cox, Jane Arnott, sorry, I'm pointing, David Wimbo, Shirley Garner, Anna Stenning, Peter Sutton, Mivanwi Fox, and me. Some poets will tell you the inspiration for their poem before they read it. Some will not. And the inspiration for others will be obvious. So I'd like to start with, introduce with this poem, which is entitled Portrait of a Poet in a Noisy Street, which was inspired by a single line from Widow in the By Street. And that line is, Life is a long headache in a noisy street, which I thought was rather sad. But Portrait of a Poet in a Noisy Street. He walks with landlover's legs, an unexpected gait, as though surprised that anything else was ever assumed. He carries the weight of a childhood's paradise in his pocket, which he rolls round his heart regularly, polishing, testing for tarnish, the smell of his home soil dusting his jacket. He tilts his head to face the west wind blowing from every open window, inhales those scents that his breath is made of, red earth, Daffodils, water, salt. His eyes are heavy and ready to overspill at the sound of a bird's cry, which is why he keeps wolves running, distracting, like the slight of a conjurer's hand. As he leaves the street for the peace of the meadow, he pauses to reflect on the knots in his life and nods. So much beauty suddenly branded on a child will leave a white-hot headache for life.
Thank you. The next is David. Hello. This is inspired by a line from So Long to Learn by John Macefield. He says, some young savages still killed the wren on St. Stephen's Day, which is Boxing Day, of course. On Stephen's Day, they hunt the wren, the bird which does no ill. With sticks and stones to bring him down, they harry him around the town. They hunt him down to kill. On Stephen's Day, they break his bones, the bird which does no hurt. They bring their guns to shoot him down. They hunt him all around the town. They lay him in the dirt. On Stephen's day, they tear his breast, the feathers from his wings. They sell those feathers door to door. The people buy a feather for the good luck that it brings. No other day than Stephen's day may Wrens be killed again. But on this day he did betray, led soldiers where St. Stephen lay, and so the saint was slain. On Stephen's day they hunt the wren, the wren which does no ill, with sticks and stones to bring him down. They hurry him around the town, they hunt him down to kill. Hello. In Grace Before Ploughing, his fragments of autobiography, Macefield wrote of his love of the Gloucester to Hereford Canal, which passed through Ledbury. He wrote, it seemed to urge the young soul to adventure on, and it seemed to tell of wonders to try to get to. Some of his poems echo these thoughts. Roadways is one of them. When I read it lately, I realized that for every young person who takes to the road to adventure, there is almost always someone left behind. My poem is called Your Road. A long road leads beyond our gate. That road is yours. It beckons you. It plays to your impatient youth, and its allure is compulsive. The road will take you, wind with you striding its smooth tarmac, its blind beds and hidden dips to where my eyes cannot see. Let your long road lead you onward, beyond the reach of siren calls, from lay strewn with the debris of other lives, testing your resolve. I mask my emptiness with smiles and shield my eyes from your future as you turn to wave, then vanish, and I am standing at the gate. The title from this comes from Macefield commenting a letter on a walk in a beechwood contemplating existence, and the last line is also in his words. The incredible and the impossible. Thoughts leap direct from mind to mind by means of symbols on a page or carved in stone. Translators find speaking from some ancient age that yet had legends, lore, and tales retold since upright apes folks first spoke, and reasoned art will never fail while history can be invoked. Stand on the shoulders of mankind. Don't spectate, but truly see 
assimilate in Magpie Mind, hone connections, creativity. Parody is a compliment. You're beneath our skin, inside our soul. Your strengths, spirit, craft, bright intent, move us so deeply. Such is the role of poetry, how to find a way to capture ecstasy, compelling us to feel it too as it conveys your realm of joy beyond all telling. Thank you. And now Peter. This is called Beyond the Station, and it's inspired rather by the geography of Ledbury as much as by Macefield. I like to think it's the sort of thing he might have observed. I have actually seen this scene that I describe. Do you see what I see? Billy at the upstairs window and Dobbin nodding at the down. Daisy in the best front parlour. And Porky in a silken gown. Some folk have two legs. Some have four. So says Miss Carraway. It's what she thinks. It's what she'll tell you if you go and ask. Though you may not want to. Not now she stinks. But why... Did the woman buy an old farm with a paddock and barn and five-acre field, a couple of cows, a gentle cart horse, a goat or two, and a sow and her brood? Why join the church and the W.I. and live like a human for twenty years, then move to the cowshed, leaving the house to the beasts and the baleful weather? What childhood occurrence did so much harm? What monster, what devil, what rat, what louse embedded deep in her volcanoes of tears that welled up at last with shattering force? What parent abused her, denied her food? What friend, uncle, neighbor forced her to yield? What sickness or sadness or evil eye blew her mind away like a feather? This is no tale from Macefield's time. You'll find her eating cow cake still beyond the station if you climb a certain bluebelled sylvan hill, a seeming paradise that hides the ugliness of rural rides. Hello. This one's written using the first and last lines of Sonnet 37 by Macefield. What am I, life, this thing of watery salt and carbon, stored up in its many forms, awaiting its release when you call halt to cell's division, finishing the storms I rode, unconscious of the body's how, but knowing, as my globe spins down its day, that carbon's strong affinity will grow irresistible to common clay, to join it in the earth or by the flame. Then, wave by wave, my travelled seas, the ports I knew, will call me back again from Ledbury's fields and apple trees to where some sailor, gazing at the sky, tingles, not knowing how, but wondering why. So my poem um, kind of is about John Maysfield's time um, 
just before the First World War. And um, I'm just going to give you a little bit of an intro to what he was doing in that time. At the outbreak of the war in August 1914, John Macefield moved his country retreat from Great Hampton in Buckinghamshire to Lullingdon Farm in Berkshire. The Macefields spent a great deal of time at Lullingdon with their friends Robert and Ethel Moon in nearby Aston Tyrold. A community of other writers and artists visited regularly. Macefield later wrote this about his time in Berkshire. In the first weeks of July 1914, I was in an old house in Berkshire, a house built eight centuries ago before by the monks as a place of rest and contemplation and beauty. I had never seen England so beautiful as then, and a little company of lovely friends was there. Rupert Brooke was one of them, and we read poems in that old haunt of beauty and wandered on the downs. I remember saying that the Austro-Serbian business might cause a European war in which we might be involved, but the others did not think this likely. They laughed. At Lollingdon, Mosefield wrote his only poem directly about the First World War, which was the moving lyric, August 1914, and which connects the beauty of the Berkshire countryside to the sadness of trenches. During this period, he also compiled a collection of sonnets, which are mainly metaphysical in theme, and different to any of Macefield's other verses. The sonnets were Mace show Macefield's struggles to find mental strength when faced with the despair of what he knew was happening in France. He had wanted to do his bit for the war, but was initially rejected on medical grounds. However, in February 1915, he was assigned to go out to France with the Red Cross for six weeks as an orderly. On the basis of what he saw, he returned to try to improve facilities for, Red, for the field hospitals treating French casualties, and then to organize a motorboat ambulance service for the Dardanelles campaign. The next paragraph is a quote from the artist Anna Dillon's work on recording the battlefields of northern France in 2017. On the strength of his book Gallipoli, published in 1916, and as a result of his lectures in America, which ignited much speculation that he was being used as an instrument of propaganda, Sir Douglas Haig asked Macefield to chronicle the Somme. Macefield was sent to France in February 1917 to visit the battlefields and become familiar with the geography of the land. The Somme Chronicle eventually appeared as two volumes, The Old Front Line and The Battle of the Somme. It is from these writings that he drew on direct links between the landscape of northern France and the Berkshire downland. In 1917, the family moved to a more comfortable house at Balls Hill near Oxford, where they could still see the Berkshire Downs. For this event, um, I wanted to write about the Macefield's time in Berkshire. I was intrigued by Macefield's writing about Neoplatonism and spirits of place in Lullingdon Downs. So the sonnet's called After Lullingdon Downs. So if this life's produced by some great law, with purpose in its many strange contortions, how could you know this when the curse of war brought death and ruin in all its gross proportions? Your friends were lucky if they had the time to think of Berkshire Downs in all their beauty. You saw them carried from the old front line with eyes scorched shut by nights of cold and duty. Was it then that you went back to your thought of life moving beyond the human season? Nor yet did you shy from all crimes wrought with words in praise of earthly good and reason. And if your spirit hovers over this earth, help us see beauty amid despair and know its worth.
to help the Stanza Group get writing for this event, we were invited to go to the John Macefield Archive in Ledbury. Um, and um, while we were there, our uh, host mentioned in passing that um, when John Macefield lived in Oxfordshire with his wife, his neighbours used to pass by his garden and look over the wall and see his long johns hanging on the washing line. Um, I immediately thought this would be the theme for my poem. <laughs> I thought it would help me keep in perspective um, the idea that a great man, a great writer and a great poet is still nevertheless a human being who wears underwear that his wife has to wash and um, he's just quite a normal human being. I also got to w wonder what these neighbours actually thought when they knew of his reputation and looked over and see this rather ordinary scene. And uh, when I wrote my poem, I had in mind a particular kind of neighbour who was a woman who was quite literate, not very well off, and probably not quite as happily married as Macefield was. Um, and in my poem, um, which I do call John's Long Johns, um, I make reference to two of his well-known poems, The West Wind and The Word. But I hope, even if you don't know these poems, that this one will make some sense. John's Long Johns. Made in Matlock at Lee Smedley's Mill by young girls with old names, Elsie, Nellie, Fat Flory, Little May, the wool, the polyester, the box weave, the flat lock stitching joining cut edges to prevent irritation. Little May fashioned the flies he would later reach into with his laureate hand to release one thing or another. Flies, Constance, would rub vigorously, usually on Mondays, the tub, the water, the soap, the mangle, the juiceless legs, the pegs, the prop, the line of clean living. She'd watch the wind blow through the long pale skins imprinted with his old bones, making a show of how poetry causes a man to fly one minute with a sky full of birds and the next leave him limp-limbed, waiting for the call. A neighbour looking over the wall sees two ecstatic woolly legs ballooning up in the clouds and the blue and daffodils coming through bright green grass and to make it even more unbearable, a thrush fluting in his nest. If only her Albert could find words to tell her their love was sweeter for the vanished days and its gold coin still current. She trudges on, tears in her eyes, wind in her ears, saying, I've balm for bruised hearts. Will you not leave home, sister? Will you?
Hello. This is a poem inspired by the first and last lines again of John Macefield's Sonnet 54. You will remember me in days to come, in the busy street or at the fair, a flicker at the corner of your eye will turn your head, but I will not be there. A flash of window glass as you walk by, the church lane cobbles underneath your feet, a sense of something lost in Cabbage Lane. Some memory will stir, though incomplete. Sit you quietly, take down my book. Turn to By Street, you will find me there, noticing where others only look, cherishing where no one else would care. Find me in frost, where crystal winter air blasts the blown branch, and beauty lodges there. Macefield wrote several poems at great length for which he never apologised, nor shall I. Um, this is called Crossroads, and it's inspired by Macefield's sea poems, and it uses one of his rhyme schemes. And again, it reflects something which I did not quite directly witness, but I did work for a long time as a translator of shipping cases. Crossroads. This is the point where triple lanes converge Mouth of the Elba, Europe's open moor, where land meets sea in salt-crust muddy surge, where landsmen bid farewell to shore, and seamen, aye, what weather is in store, and half the shipping in the world's afloat from coffin submarine to lobster boat. From out the north, the friar riding low, a coastal barge late-engined, filled with pine for paper mills, chugs wallowing and slow. She's following her old familiar line from Norway to the Elbe and the Rhine, to which she carries bristles, hides and cod and every cargo known to man or God. From west, along the busy North Sea lane, returns the Potsdam, emptied of its swell of migrants gone to Illinois or Maine, Restocked with men who've meat and grain to sell, its top deck lined with folk who long to tell their green-eyed New York neighbours back at home of how they conquered brash Berlin and Rome. And from the east, from Hamburg, sparkling new machines, explosives, fuses and supplies for mines in Argentina and Peru and Chemicals for factory owners, dyes and drums of acetate and alkalis ooze out aboard the Nora, overdue, her master grousing at her sluggard crew. He's dropped the pilot, and almighty now, he stands upon the bridge, his fists clenched tight with lockout, lookouts on each wing and at the bow, and yet... As dusk comes down, the evening light turns all the world to so divine a sight, it draws each seasoned watcher's drowsy eye from sea to Wayland's roaring, roasting sky. Although they see the Potsdam full ahead, lit up like some great curzel for a dance, the friar's port light 
is as good as dead against the furnace sun, and in a trance the watchers dream of smithies, till by chance the starboard lookout looks and waves an arm and swears and shouts and raises the alarm. The friar's crew are easy in their mind, all unaware the norns have spun their fate. Well, turn to port, a eh? skip and pass behind and slip into the elbow, asks the mate. As long as that there Nora goes on straight. But then the mate cries, Skipper, look at that, she's turned to starboard. What the hell she at? Then we, the skipper says, must follow rules and turn to starboard too out of her track. Aye, aye, the mate replies. But can't the fools see we had started on a larboard tack? They can, the skipper says. She's turning back. Go hard to starboard, bring the old tub round and head her westward till we're safe and sound. As darkness falls, a peritif in hand, the people on the Potsdam point and stare and wonder if the friar is unmanned, some hazy ghost ship conjured from the air, as she and Nora tack and weave and wear, perform a glacial rite, a sad bourree until... The Nora slows and loses way, but now she cannot steer and still heads straight towards the rolling, heavy-laden barge, which struggles like an angler's wriggling bait before the closing, huge, explosive charge. She churns the water. But the task's too large, and though the Nora starts to go astern, there is no going back, no lucky turn. The Potsdam does not see the ships collide as wood gives way to unforgiving steel. But fortune smiles, for though the friar's side is hold abaft the wheelhouse, still the keel is whole. The engine runs, it seems she'll heal. And on she limps, more slowly but still game, recording with a curse the Nora's name. The freighter is scarce marked and does not pause to launch a needless lifeboat or a raft, nor does the Potsdam stop, for there's no cause, no flare that calls for help from other craft. She ploughs ahead and leaves the friar aft, where presently... The callous sea creeps in and spreads beneath the barge's tarry skin. The northern sea is deadly, cold and stark, as five well-travelled seamen find when down the friar plunges in the shrouded dark. Next day, in lighted offices in town, the lawyers, dry-shod men in wig and gown, make out the routine claims for loss at sea of goods and men whose obsequies were free. Enchantment. A man who shares... What his vision, vision catches. Something once glimpsed in a brightness not of this world. Nature's perceived perfection awakening a half-sensed memory of something vaster than any comprehension. 
Mankind is heroic. Civilization as a greater good, even in the suck-mud hell of the Somme's close. A bird sings in a broken tree. A shell-hole stagnant slurry reflects a fresh sky. Write, write up, and read aloud your verse to stir the heart, awaken souls so somnolent they have never felt that spark of life ignite. Hello. Um, glasses. Um, for those of you who are passionate John Maysfield fans, I'd like to remind you what it says in the dictionary. It says, a pastiche celebrates the work it imitates rather than mocks. This is called sea fever. I must go down to the beach again, to the crowded beach and the sand, where all I need is a big towel, my bikini and a man's hand to help me down and help me up and smooth on the factor 60 when the sun is hot and there is no shade and we are mostly tipsy. I must go down to the beach again for the call of the ice cream van is a loud tune and an old tune and the cornets are all gargantuan. And all I ask is some fish and chips and the sound of the children whooping as they pee in the sea and kick the sand at the greedy seagulls swooping. I must go down to the beach again for a walk on the fretwork pier, for the punch and duty, the slot machines, and another bottle of beer. Then all I ask is a bit of a snooze and a sit on the promenade, with a friend off the bus and time to write you a wish-you-were-here postcard. Well, that's it. Thank you very much for coming. Um, he did have a rather fascinating life, and the more I learn about him, uh, the more I wished I could have met him. As uh, Shirley mentioned, the archive for the John Macefield Society is held in the Master's House. And there are some leaflets at the back if you'd like to support the John Macefield Society. It really doesn't cost a lot of money a year, and it's, it's a really worthwhile cause. While we were at this meeting, um, I think it was, it was Bob was there, I think, and he, he mentioned that at some point um, there'd been a PhD student doing some research and as John Macefield was a hugely, you know, he never stopped writing letters. He was a big, big, big correspondent. And suddenly the correspondence between him and his brother stopped. The letters just stopped. So this student thought he'd found a rift in the family and he started rifling around to find the reason for this rift. And this is what had happened. The danger of archives. Just because the letters stopped doesn't mean there was a falling out. A telephone had been installed. <laughs> Thank you for coming.